the location of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. Uh, he stopped at the end of his second missionary journey in Ephesus, and the people wanted him to stay longer, uh, but he was not able to. But he promised, if the Lord wills, I will come back to you. Well, then when we saw the beginning of his second missionary journey, we saw that he did, in fact, return to Ephesus. At the beginning of Acts chapter 19, he comes to Ephesus, Paul does, and he encounters some disciples of John the Baptist uh, who had not yet uh, been uh, not yet been saved, and so he shares the gospel with them. They believe, they uh, are baptized, they uh, receive the Holy Spirit, and that's where we were the last time uh, we were together in the Book of Acts, the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey, uh, and his particularly his ministry in Ephesus. And so our text today is Acts nineteen verses eight through twenty, and in those verses we're going to see Paul's ministry in Ephesus continue and see more of what God did in Ephesus through Paul. Well, with that, uh, would you please stand with me if you're able in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to read Acts chapter 19 verses 8 through 20. What we're about to hear is God's word for his people today. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of him. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You can be seated.
me ask you a question as we begin. Do you want the people of Erath County to be one to Jesus? Do you want to see lives radically transformed? Do you want to see the gospel spread throughout our community? I trust that the answer is yes. But here's what we need to understand. Based on what the Lord shows us here in Acts chapter 19. All those things that we want to see happen will not happen if we go try to give people what they already have. Those things won't happen if we go and give people what they think that they need. Those things won't happen if we try to compete with the best that the world has to offer. This will only happen if the word of the Lord prevails and increases mightily in our community. Only the power of the word of God can accomplish those things that we want to see happen. We must not substitute creativity or excitement or the spectacular and dramatic or or even something as noble as acts of service. There is no substitute For the power of the word of the Lord. What happened in Ephesus was that the word of the Lord increased and prevailed. And what happened in Ephesus is what Erath County needs. We need the triumph of the word. For the power of God's word to be unleashed in our community and the hearts and lives of people. We're going to see in these verses of Acts 19 the triumph of the word, and we'll see it in two scenes. The first, we'll see the word triumphs through exposition. That's in verses 8 through 10, the word triumphs through exposition. And then in verses 11 through 20, we'll see the word triumphs over lesser powers. It triumphs over lesser powers. Powers. But first, the word triumphs through exposition. So Paul began his ministry in Ephesus in the synagogue. Look at verse 8 again. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So as we've already seen in Acts, This is Paul's pattern. This is what he does every time he enters a new city. He goes to the synagogue. In fact, this is what we've already seen him do in Ephesus. So look back at Acts 18, verse 19. Uh, He went to Ephesus, and he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Uh, So this is what Paul does. He goes into the synagogue, he reasons. And and let's, let's consider that word, reasoned. 
What is he doing when he goes to a town, he wants to minister, he reasons. Uh, This is a word that Luke uses a lot, especially in this section of Acts, as what Paul does with the word, he reasons. Um, uh, Just one other example, if you flip back to Acts chapter 17, uh, look at verses 2 through 4 of Acts 17. This was whenever he was in Thessalonica, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he, what? What? Reasoned with them from the, what? Scriptures. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So when Paul opened up the word before an audience, he took the word and he reasoned. What that means is Paul didn't come in and just start making claims out of nowhere. He started with Scripture. And from Scripture, the text that God inspired, he made solid, legitimate, reasonable, credible arguments to demonstrate the intended meaning of Scripture, to show what God really put in the text of the Bible. He unlocked for them what is there in the text. He pointed out what God put in. He reasons with them from the Scripture. Another term we could use to describe what he's doing when he's reasoning from the Scriptures is biblical exposition. That's what Paul's doing. He's doing biblical exposition. He's starting with, with exegesis, that is, taking the Scripture and unlocking what it means in its original context, what the author intended to communicate to his original audience. Uh, It starts there, and then from there, just as we see in Acts 17, Paul sets the example for us. He starts with exegesis, but then he reflects on how that passage is fits into the theological context of the whole Bible, particularly how it connects to the death and resurrection of Jesus. He starts with exegesis, and then he reflects on how it connects to the death and resurrection of Jesus, and then he moves on, finally, to show how this text is relevant today uh, and aims to persuade his audience to respond to the word as it is written in its original context. He's doing biblical exposition. That's what we see in Paul's example here in the synagogue. Specifically, though, he's reasoning with them about one particular topic. He's reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. So this is a really important theme in the book of Acts. In the very first chapter of Acts, Jesus, before he ascends to the Father, is talking and teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. In the very last chapter of Acts, we will find Paul teaching about the kingdom of God. And every chapter in between 
we see the kingdom of God growing. The kingdom of God advancing. The kingdom of God being built. And so for three months, Luke tells us, Paul was able to do this. He was able to reason with them from the scriptures, exposit the scriptures, teach them about the kingdom of God. But three months was as long as he was able to last in the synagogue. Look at verse 9 again. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So for those three months, Paul was able to make some disciples in the synagogue. But there were some at the synagogue who became stubborn, hard-hearted, like Pharaoh whenever Moses asked him to let God's people go. Uh, They were unbelieving, but not just unbelieving, they were divisive. They slandered Paul, they slandered Christianity, and so this just became an environment where it was no longer uh, possible for Paul to continue. He couldn't stay and do the ministry that God had called him to if he stayed at the synagogue. So he and the disciples moved over to the hall of Tyrannus. Uh, The hall of Tyrannus uh, would have been a school or a, a lecture hall. It was a place where uh, Paul and these other disciples could gather without interference uh, from those who were slandering and stubborn. Uh, But they gathered together in the hall of Tyrannus, and what does he do once he gets there? He reasons with them from the scriptures. He just keeps on going back to the scriptures and teaching them what God has put in them. That's what he's aiming to do. Um, You might remember that at... uh, RAU, Reaching Africa's Unreached. Um, Jacob and Carol Lee have a building there called the Hall of Tyrannus. Uh, And that is a lecture hall where the Bible is exposited. And that's where this comes from. So, um, that's that's what they do. They are uh, reasoning in the Hall of Tyrannus. Okay, so how does it go there at the Hall of Tyrannus? Well, look at verse 10. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard. The word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So this continued for two years. Now that in and of itself is longer than Paul stayed anywhere. But we know from the rest of the context that he actually ended up staying a total of three years in Ephesus in general. There was two two specific years of this ministry ongoing in the Hall of Tyrannus, but his total time in Ephesus was three years. This is the longest stay Luke records of any place that Paul went to. Just with the sheer um, numbers uh, and, and time, Luke is painting a picture here. He wants us to see this was the most successful season of ministry Paul encountered in all of his missionary journeys. So what do I mean by successful? What, what, was, it, uh, what was it that made it a successful season of ministry? People heard the word. A lot of people heard the word. People all over the region heard the word. People from different people groups, Jews and Gentiles, people heard the word of the Lord. Uh, In fact, 
the people hearing the word of the Lord wasn't just limited to the region of Asia. While Paul is in Ephesus, it's from there that he writes the letter of 1 Corinthians to the church in Corinth. So even the Corinthians outside of this region are receiving the word of the Lord because of what God is doing through Paul in Ephesus. From Ephesus, the word triumphed. And it triumphed through exposition. Why was Paul so committed to biblical exposition. Why was Paul so committed to biblical exposition? Well, flip ahead with me to chapter 20 of Acts. In Acts 20, at this section we're going to look at, this is when Paul is giving his farewell address to the elders of the church in Ephesus. And he says this to them in verses 26 and 27. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Don't miss what Paul is saying. He says at the end of his time in Ephesus, he's looking back on his ministry and how he taught the word. And what he's going to say to them is, I am innocent of your blood. Why? Because I didn't shrink back from declaring you the whole counsel of God. If Paul had shrunk back, if Paul had not given them the word, if he had not given them the whole counsel of God, he would have been guilty of their blood. If we take what Paul is saying seriously, then we have to recognize a commitment to biblical exposition is literally a matter of life and death. Why? Why would Paul say that this is a matter of him being guilty or innocent of their blood? Why is a commitment to biblical exposition a matter of life and death? Because without biblical exposition, we have no gospel. Without biblical exposition, we have no gospel. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, the letter that he writes from Ephesus, that the gospel is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel, the only way of salvation, the only way a sinner can be reconciled to God, the gospel is rooted in God's written word the gospel cannot be understood unless we reason from the scriptures we cannot have the gospel without the scriptures 
Not only that, consider what Paul specifically teaches in verse 8 of Acts 19, the kingdom of God. Well, without the scripture, we can't know the kingdom of God. Scripture is what answers the question, who is this king in the kingdom? The scriptures are what answer the question, how do I become a citizen of the kingdom of God? Uh, The scriptures are the ones that tell us what is life in the kingdom like. The scriptures are the ones that tell us what the future of the kingdom is. Uh, There is no way to talk about the kingdom of God without reasoning from the scriptures. A commitment to biblical exposition is literally a matter of life. And death. Well, so we need to ask then, what is a commitment to biblical exposition? Well, first thing I want to clarify is I don't, I'm not just talking about preaching. Now, certainly it's not less than preaching, but a commitment to biblical exposition is a lot more than just what happens in a pulpit. A commitment to reasoning from the scripture, to biblical exposition, is a commitment to letting God speak for himself through the scriptures. It's a commitment to starting with the Bible and then going on from there, of always having the Bible as our starting place. Uh, It's a commitment to submitting to the authority of scripture. Practically speaking, it means that when, when there's a question that comes up about God or about truth, about morality, about life. Our response should not be, well, I think, or, well, you know, I've heard, or even, well, you know, I was always taught, but instead, our response should be, the Bible says in book, chapter, verse, It's a commitment to starting with Scripture and letting our ideas and beliefs and our lives be shaped by what it says and not by taking meaning and ideas and thoughts and opinions and importing them into the text. I want to start with Scripture and reason from there, expose what is already there in the text. Uh, This is a really important filter for sermons, uh, for books, for articles. Uh, You can ask yourself, am I just hearing stuff that sounds good being kind of thrown out there? Or is this sermon, is this book making reasonable, credible, solid arguments from Scripture itself? Uh, Is this just Is this someone who is throwing ideas out of nowhere, or is this someone who is pointing out the plain truth of Scripture? Uh, Ultimately, what this means is that we must have loyalty to God and His Word before we have loyalty to any man, any person, any teacher, any human authority. We must have allegiance to God and His Word. I mean, think about this. Why did the disciples in Ephesus go with Paul? Why did they leave the synagogue and go with him to the hall of Tyrannus? Uh, This wasn't a 
Paul versus the synagogue leaders thing. It wasn't like they had their team and Paul has his team and you got to pick your side of which human leader you need to follow. No. Why did they go with him? He taught the word. He gave them the scriptures. So follow the word. Follow the word. Commit yourself to biblical exposition. Well, the second thing we see as the word triumphs in Ephesus is we see the word triumphs over lesser powers. The word triumphs over lesser powers. So we've already seen a picture of Paul's successful ministry in Ephesus. And now Luke is going to go on to describe even more about the remarkably successful ministry that Paul had among the people of Ephesus. Uh, Luke says Paul was doing extraordinary miracles. Is that right? Is what I just said right? That Paul was doing extraordinary miracles? No. Look at it again. And who was doing it? God. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of of Paul. God was doing the miracles. He was the one at work. Paul was not harnessing God like a superpower, making him enable, uh, enable him to do what he wanted to do. Paul was not harnessing God. God was using Paul as his instrument to do what he wanted to do. And what was it that he wanted to do? What was it that God was using Paul as his instrument to accomplish? Extraordinary miracles. And don't miss that word extraordinary. You can take it apart. Extraordinary. Luke explicitly is telling us what was going on is not normal. It's extraordinary. Well, what kind of extraordinary miracles were happening in Ephesus? Well, just look at verse 12. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. I mean, Paul didn't even have to be there in person. They would take these cloths that had just touched his skin, had a little bit of a sweat on them, and people were getting healed. This is extraordinary, uh, and it is extraordinary, uh, but it's not the first time that Luke even has told us about this. You might remember back in Acts chapter 5, verse 15, uh, people would bring their sick uh, whenever Peter walked by just so that his shadow might fall on them. Very similar kind of concept. Or you might remember Luke 8 and the woman with the issue of blood, who if she could just touch the fringe of Jesus' garment— she believed that she could be healed. So these are extraordinary, but there, there's multiple of them. But we, but we need to pay close attention. We need to pay close attention to what the Bible says about these extraordinary miracles. First of all, as we already said, verse 11, God was doing them. This is God's work, not man's work. Okay, that's number one. The second thing we need to recognize is that these things happened, we can learn from the rest of the, the, the context of Scripture, these things happened as a result of faith in 
Jesus. These happen as a result of faith in Jesus. So, for instance, in Luke chapter 8, the woman with the issue of blood, Luke 8, 48, Jesus looks at the woman and he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. And that's important because we need to understand that the, the fringe of his garment, the handkerchief, the apron, there was not power embedded in the threads as if people could accidentally brush up against a holy garment and miraculously be healed and not understand where it came from because they had never even heard of Jesus before. No, this was happening as a result of faith in Jesus. Why is it important that we understand those things? Because Luke is about to tell us about some imposters who did not understand those things. They didn't understand that it was God's work, not man's work. They didn't understand that faith in Jesus was the necessary requirement. Look at verses 13 and 14. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So these seven sons of Sceva see what Paul was doing, and they went in on the action. But they didn't want to be instruments in God's hands. They wanted to harness God's power for their own purposes to do what they wanted to do. They did not have faith in Jesus. Instead, they just invoked Jesus' name like a, a spell or a magic word. And they clearly didn't know Jesus. I mean, they say, we, we, I adjure you in the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They had just heard about him. They don't even know Jesus. They're just using his name like a magic word. What follows this is what I think is probably the greatest burn in the Bible. Verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Uh, this demon is not impressed with these exorcists. I mean, the demon knew Jesus better than the exorcist did. And he had at least heard of Paul. But this demon scoffs at these charlatans before him who are powerless to do anything with authority over him. And then he demonstrates his superior power, power superior to these exorcists in verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So he doesn't just overpower them. He humiliates them. They are clearly seen as the frauds that they are. But this story is not about the seven sons of Sceva. The story is not about the man with the spirit. The story is not even about Paul. This story is about God. 
And specifically, it's about what God wanted to do in the hearts of the people of Ephesus. Look at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. God was up to something in the people of Ephesus. The story about this failed exorcism spread, and as it did, the people heard, and they were sobered. It was a sobering and frightening thing. Uh, They heard, they knew that the sons of Sceva had been revealed as frauds. They knew they were fake because they were also seeing what happened when Jesus was actually at work. When the power of the name of Jesus was actually at work, sickness was healed. Demons were cast out. Uh, When these sons of Sceva run out of a house as failures and naked and wounded, all of a sudden they realize that's not where the power is. Jesus is where the power is. And so all the people of Ephesus thought more highly of the name of Jesus as a result. His name was extolled. And look at the effect that this had on certain believers in verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. So among all of the residents of Ephesus, Luke hones in on a group of believers. So these are people who had already trusted in Jesus. They were already following him, trusting in his grace. But these believers who trusted in Jesus also held on to some of the practices of their former way of life. Uh, Given the context here, specifically, we ought to have in mind that these practices were had to do with pagan magic. And so they had these practices, these spells and incantations, uh, and they were so moved by what they saw that they realized they needed to give those things up. They gave up their old ways. And instead, they trusted in Jesus in an even greater way than they had previously. Now look at verse 19. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Uh, So again, God is at work in the hearts of these believers. A work that is resulting in radical repentance. Radical transformation. They took these magic books, these books with spells, these books with secrets to power and spiritual ability. They took them and they burned them. And these were not inexpensive. What does he say? The, the value was 50,000 pieces of silver. It's been estimated that in, in our currency, th- these were worth as much as $6 million. This is a lot of value, a lot that they have invested in these things. But when you know the infinite value of Jesus... And his word, 
six million dollars is a small sacrifice because ultimately all you're sacrificing is something that was powerless to begin with they had come to know a greater power Uh, flip with me to ephesians chapter one so paul will end up in prison spoiler alert and he will write to among other churches the church in ephesus and he will talk about this greater power and he will pray starting in verse 19 of ephesians 1 that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come that's the power that these people in Ephesus had come to know that's the power that they had seen on display and they gave up all lesser powers because they knew the one who had a higher power and a higher name than all of those powerless practices they had once devoted themselves to well so finally what what's the effect of all of this look at verse 20 so the word of the lord continued to increase and prevail mightily the effect was the triumph of the word Notice that word prevail, the word of the Lord prevailed mightily. That word prevail is the same word as back in 16 for overpowered. Just like the demon had overpowered the exorcist, the ultimate prevailing, the ultimate overpowering, the ultimate triumph of this passage comes in verse 20 when the word of the Lord prevails the word is where the real power is the word is what wins the day ultimately it's the word that has the real power because it's the word that has the gospel of jesus christ at the center the power of god to raise jesus from the dead this is the word that has power to so move a heart that that person would be willing to give up their former ways that they had invested millions of dollars in and burn those things. That kind of power. That's the power of the word of God. The power to change hearts and lives for eternity. That's real power. And everything else is an imposter and a counterfeit. These people saw the word triumph over lesser powers the believers in ephesus gave up they gave up the things that they used to look to for spiritual power those things that they used to run to for sources of spiritual power they gave them up they had once trusted in these things these words these practices for power even after becoming christians They were still trusting in these powers. But when they saw how powerless those things were, they gladly gave them up and they turned to the word. 
they turn to the source of real power. Sadly, there are many Christians who are willing to trust in the word of the Lord for power for salvation, but not for power for their other spiritual needs. Uh, They'll trust the word of the Lord for power to get them to heaven, but not for their other spiritual needs. I, I know that the scriptures are able to make me wise unto salvation, Uh, But if my marriage is going to be fixed, then I need a different power. I know the gospel is the power of God for salvation, but to overcome this depression, I need a better power. I know Jesus created my soul and saved my soul, but if my soul needs help, I need a professional. If you can trust Jesus for salvation, can't you trust him for everything else that you need? Paul writes in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. 2 Peter 1.3 His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. God's Power for you did not stop the day you were born again. God's power that he wants to work in your heart did not stop the day that you were born again. If you are in Christ, then in him, in his word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God has power that he wants to work in you. Power for you. Power to overcome sin and temptation. Power to change. Power to reconcile relationships. Power to give hope. Power to give peace. Power to overcome despair and anxiety and fear. So if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, but you're still clinging to other sources for spiritual power, for the other spiritual needs you have, I would just encourage you on the authority of Scripture, give up. I know you may have invested a lot, maybe not even money, but time and energy and trust and faith. You may have invested a lot in these former sources that you look to for spiritual power, just like the people in Ephesus did. But I would urge you to follow their example and see that those things are powerless. 
see that Jesus and in his word are real power and give those things up. In Christ, there is real power for free. So trust in the power of his word, the word that increased and prevailed mightily in Ephesus. God did amazing things in Ephesus. He allowed Paul to minister for two years, such that, as verse 10 says, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. He demonstrated his power. He demonstrated and showed that his power was greater than those who shamefully tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. And all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, extolled the name of the Lord Jesus. So that ultimately the word of the Lord that Paul exposited increased and prevailed mightily throughout that region. May our prayer be that God would do the same in our region. But he will only do so through the power of his word. So let's not settle for substitutes. Let's not settle for worldly wisdom or things that are attractive to uh, people with worldly sensibilities. Let's not try to compete or shock or dramatize. Let's just give them the word as those who have received the word, who know the real power of what God has spoken, God's truth. Let's pray together. Father, you have revealed that your word is the source of true power. For in your word, we come to know you. In your word, we hear the message of the gospel. That Jesus died and rose again so that he could save us from sin. Transform our lives. Give us a relationship with you for all of eternity. Enjoy. Glorifying you forever. That nothing less will satisfy our souls. Nothing less will give us hope. Nothing less has power. The power that we need. So Father, I pray that we would trust in you by trusting in what you have spoken. Love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.